0: welcome back to the isle of faces welcome 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 come grab yourself a log come and have a sit on the grass and say hello i am sir buckley your resident green person here in the isle
1: and we're glad to see you again i hope you've been enjoying your break here between feast and dance the yarn has missed you i hope you've missed us too
0: i am speaking to you for me well it's fairly cloudy it's getting a bit colder but the sun is persevering so i persevere along with it I've been lucky enough to be out in the sunny countryside of late, so I'm still going, I hope it's nice where you are as well, and yes, here we are, back again, here on the isle with all you wonderful people. It's been weird not talking to you, but it's always nice to have a little break, I'm sure you always need a bit of a break from my monotonous voice, and not to worry because I know you're always in good hands with the rest of the Aswath community and all the different podcasts and essays you can be reading across the board, I know who... None of you, I know for a fact, none of you have time to get to them all because there's just too many, it's impossible. But it is still much fun to gather on the aisle and welcome you back with this little teeny tiny Dance with Dragons kind of primer, prepper episode, whatever you'd like to call it. Just a little thing to keep us going here and just remind us of what we're about to tackle because it's pretty darn big. But we'll get to that in a second. Just before we get to that, what has been happening in this little break? Well, I should probably first say... This is not the end of the break, this isn't an announcement podcast. I'm still uh, not sure when Aziz and the show want to kick off dance, not sure when Valor Readers will be back, you might have even heard before, I have. I think on the Feast wrap-up episode, Aziz mentioned sometime in October or late September, so we're probably coming close, I'm sure it won't be too long, and yeah, I know you've been, spoiled for contact anyway, even Aziz hasn't given a rest, I see him putting out his stream still, so not even that much of a break. What about the aisle what's been happening on the other faces well hopefully you've seen I finally eventually did get the storm's end patron only episode out that's out for all tiers now that came out last week as i'm talking to you here and well i was glad because there was a lot of fun but it was a lot of work i really put a lot of effort into that one Thankfully, had some good reception, and thank you to all our wonderful patrons, firstly, for being patrons, but also for sharing that and giving good feedback, and uh, apparently it went quite well. So, if you haven't heard, it is my reading of the first chapter of The Great Castles of Westeros by yours truly, the Storm's End chapter, and yeah, I go through it all. I read the chapter in full, I put some extra little tidbits in, uh, some meta-commentary perhaps, a little bit about the book in general, and I answer some questions from you guys about storm's end and the book also so if you would like to have a little peek at that then it's available to all patrons from one dollar and up i'm sure you know where to go by now and we'd love to have you just in general we've got a nice community going and well everyone is awesome you know how much i love them and yeah it was really fun to finally get that out especially with some cool (laughs) stormy sound effects that was my favorite bit by far just finding the the rain effects and putting those in so yeah if you'd like to have a look at that patreon.com slash isla faces and well of course be very much appreciated i've also and now finally got that done started some work on that winterfell walkthrough that i teased both on radio westeros and history of westeros Uh, had to get a new camera so i was waiting for that but that's going full steam ahead as well so that won't be too long hopefully and well mainly it's been doing this so let's talk about what we're actually doing today what are we doing joe come on we're not starting just yet, like I say, the dance, Varamir, he has to wait a little bit longer. But what we are going to do is prep ourselves today. We're going to go through all the nerdy stuff, the stuff that I really like. I'm not sure if you do, but I know I do. They're looking at the difference in which POVs we've got, who's got how many, how does the structure work, who's uh, gained POVs, who's lost them, who is now more prevalent in the early books to the, la- to the latter and looking at all these patterns and stuff like that and we're going to be looking at just kind of arcs and themes of this book what's different about this book what's the same who connects with who who is where etc etc basically just of a, a little bit of a refresher and pre-fresher that's probably a, a word for all of you guys i don't know about you but i find dance the hardest to remember i assume because i've read it the least you would think I've read it as much as any others, because I don't think I've ever started a reread and stopped, but it just seems much more unfamiliar to me. I have to remind myself of the details a bit more. So this is for me, as much as you, and yeah, like I say, the nerdy stuff. It's similar to what we did at the beginning of Feast, if you want to cast your mind back. And that's why I've made a little separate episode this time around, because you might recall at the beginning of Feast, as these set the first three chapters, it was Pate and Aaron and Aereo, and I said, I said on that episode, oh, it probably won't be too long of an episode, we've only got three chapters to do today, compared to our normal four or five, depending on what book you're doing. So this would be pretty simple. And it turned out to be a two hour episode, because at the beginning I said, okay, well let's just quickly go through who's got how many POVs, and what patterns we can see, the chapter sequencing, you know I love the chapter sequencing, and... Um, it was like 45 minutes, 50 minutes before we even started talking about Pate. So this is to try and solve that issue. We're going to get all that stuff out of the way today so that when we, whenever we do start dance proper, we can head into the darkness that is Varamyr, a very, very dark chapter that is, and uh, hit the ground running. So, like I say, we've got chapter sequencing, we've got the individual arcs, the arcs of the book in general, the different themes, What is, how this book is different and why it's so... I mean it's an important book a lot a lot of people tout this as their favorite book and fair enough i can see why for me i would say if i'm being honest it's probably my least favorite now now don't throw down your phones or grab your pitchforks or anything like that i'm not saying i do not like dance so don't quote me saying that i'm just saying if i had to sacrifice one i would sacrifice this I still love it more than anything else. The very worst of A Song of Ice and Fire is still way up high on the mountain compared to everything else. I'm just saying I don't like it as much. Maybe I will after we go through this reread and I can understand it a bit more and gain a bit more appreciation. There you go. That's what I've said. I've said it. (laughs) I'll have to stick by it now. But it is an important book. It's a masterful book. Of course it is. It's from George. It's masterful. We love it even if we don't love it as much as the others. So we're going to have a lot to talk about, some very big issues, obviously major plot developments, yeah, really major plot developments, and well, it's just taking us into this final act, isn't it? If you want to look at Feast as, I don't want to call it a timeout, but like we discussed, it deviates to some, to George letting his wings spread a bit and uh, focusing on some other things while he can, now this is kind of making up for that, now we're rushing full forward into the beginning of the end, I think we can probably cool dance if you want to look at the first three books as the beginning of the beginning and the beginning of the middle and i guess the end of the beginning i'm I'm getting lost in a a time pool there i think we should probably just start yeah that might otherwise i'm going to end up with the same problem we had at the beginning of feast while wander and ramble before i even get to the wandering and rambling bit so let's dive straight in let's look at the biggest changes in terms of who we're actually getting in this book okay so we begin with goodbye brienne so our
1: biggest loss, the one I'm going to miss the most, and also Sam. They're the two most noticeable changes, but also Sansa. Okay, Brienne and Sam had more chapters, more of the percentage in Feast, but Sansa is huge, narratively, or obviously. We've never had a book without her, so this is very much new ground. I think it's fair to include her in that upper echelon of POV characters Two characters we get across the whole series, so it's going to be very, very weird not having a book with Sansa in even if we do have Brown back to replace her, but we'll come to him in a minute. There's also, in terms of people we lose, Aaron, Ariane, and obviously, Arisokar. He's not coming back, is he? So, not a good day for the A's, is it? But given that they together made up a grand total of five chapters, it's also not that big of a loss. So, who do we have to replace them then? Well, it's only four. I think you might think it's more than four just off the glance, but yeah, only four new POVs in this book. Half of the eight we got for Feast, but still, pretty big. They are. Quentin, he's going to take over as Mr. Dawn, Barristan, Barristan. John Connington, which is a bigger deal when you find out or you remember who that actually is, and Melisandre. So not a bad lineup of newbies at all. I think if you're going into this book blind and I just rocked up and told you exactly who you're getting as new POVs, you'd be pretty excited about that crowd. So let's look at them individually. Well, Quentin, we don't know basically anything about him do we other than he's got this secret mission that Ariane told us about that duran kind of hinted at so we know vaguely what he's going to be up to so the plot is definitely interesting but him we really don't know what we can sell him as is the last martel we're yet to meet because i think we do tell, very quickly see tristane but anyone no never cares about tristane so that's kind of cool isn't it but hmm, probably going to move on from him fairly quickly then we have a former hand of the king and Rhaegar's best friend so that's very exciting that we want John Con as someone just close to Rhaegar even before we know of his actual plot in this book. Because people left from Robert's Rebellion, that era, who were strictly involved in court life are oh, in very short supply, just as characters, let alone as POVs. Jamie's really all we've had for remembering that era and those events ever since Ned died, so we're kind of really desperate for that. And we're always, always desperate for more Rhaegar information, aren't we? Especially since Eamon has now passed away. the other two i think that's the real moneymaker that's the one that's going to draw you in if you're kind of on the edge about reading dance oh i don't know depends what new povs they introduce okay well i've got two to sell it for you here in melisandre and barist and salmi we're going to step into the head of this magical woman who has dark powers that we don't even know the origins of who knows secrets we can only dream about and obviously has some master plans that may well affect the entire world and definitely characters that we know about remember She happens to be near one of our main characters at the most magical place we've ever found at the wall so yes sign us up for that please i definitely want to be inside Melisandra's head and find out what is what is going on because she's definitely one of the people we've had the most questions about and then even after that because your enthusiasm might dampen when i tell you we're only getting one Melisandre chapter but even after that we're getting sir grandfather himself sir barry a fan favorite at this point and still for many even after this book He's the awesome guy who was really the only one to actually get on with Ned down in King's Landing. We saw him throw his sword at Joffrey's feet and then cross the world to help our favorite Daenerys. Now, opinions might sour on him a bit at this point, but like I say, for many, he's still the favorite. I still very much like Barristan, flaws and all. Yes, I'm well aware of the flaws, but still, I can like him. And actually, it's just important because this is going to be our very first POV around Daenerys that isn't Daenerys itself. So that's a big moment now annoyingly as we'll come to talk about in a minute because these POVs are placed so very differently across the book well, we're not actually going to see Barristan with Daenerys through his eyes or that much is going to be after she departs but still we get to see the Daenerys situation through another person's eyes which also hasn't happened before so that's the newbies but it's really the returners that steal the show and why is that because we always have the returners they're fairly consistent from book to book except that's not true anymore is it that was true for the first three very consistent but not anymore for the first time we now have a bunch of characters who have been missing for an entire book now returning to us another damn daring of george in the first place wasn't it to actually take all those characters some smaller than others but he took the three major ones the most major ones you can get he took them away for an entire book's run that is very very daring that might easily have not worked but it has and it actually just made us wanting more didn't it but before we get onto those, the ones who have been missing, there's also the other group of returners. this little subsection of those who were included in the feast and now get the rare dance feast combo they get to be in both. So that includes Aya, so at least we have one Stark sister, alright. Jamie and Cersei also jump over as the feast big guns, which gets Jamie in the noticeable group of Tyrion, Danny, John, Sansa, Aya, Bran and Catelyn as the only POVs to appear in free straight books, we should note that. And then there's also Ariel, Victorian, and Asher although only one of those is really of note. Ario and Victorian repeat their one and two chapter appearances respectively, but Asha gets bumped from one in Feast to three in Dance, and her three are some of the best, so that's definitely worth mentioning. Also worth mentioning, if you thought Feast was a step outside the box in terms of structuring, well, let me introduce you to Dance, which applies most of its oddity to this particular low POV group. For instance, let me explain. Ario does not appear until the 38th chapter of the book. Aya, not until the 45th, Jamie the 48th, Cersei the 54th, Victorian the 56th so you get what I mean there's a big group of POVs here who don't even appear until we are really really far into the book and a large part of that is of course the timeline that is noted to us at the beginning of the book here where the feast folk which is what these mainly are have to let the dancers catch up before they can start again but they also just don't get that much of the limelight. There's less chapters for them to go around because we need to catch up on all these other people. Instead of that group, which we will return to in, in some fashion in a moment, we want to really talk about the actual returners, the real ones, the ones gone from us for over an entire book length now because we haven't had to talk about them for ages. And considering the weight of these characters in general, well, it gets us pretty ramped up for this book. So let me remind you, coming back to us are Bran, Davos, Theon, who's actually been on from two books, not one, And of course, the golden triforce that is Tyrion, Jon and Danny. I don't think we really need to sit here and explain how big those three are. Now, just those three are alone better than the other three as well. But still. Let's also consider how most of these were actually left for us on the edge of huge new steps in their lives which we were desperate to find out about before George played his greatest trick and made us all wait for an entire book. Oh, George, how cruel. So quickly, let's just remind you of what those situations were. Bran he finally crossed over into the wild realm where the apparent source of his super important powers is supposed to reside so well what's happened has he got there are we going to open on him already having found that teacher and improved his powers or are we going to have to go through this next part of the trip to with him we know how dangerous it is above the wall we've seen what's out there especially in storm when we last left him so is he going to have to go through kind of what Sam went through in reverse and what about Fion? Theon? Fion's supposed to be dead so what in the world has been happening to this man who's, who the consequences of his actions have only really been seen since his disappearance? We thought the destruction of Winterfell was bad enough, which we saw through his eyes and Bran's eyes. But now we know it's also largely responsible for Rob and Catelyn's death. So we're ready to hate him even more at the opening of this book. Yeah, we want to see him. Yeah, I'm going to give him what for. And then we actually do see him pathetic and broken as he is and it completely changes our mind, completely changes our opinion of him, uh, at least in a large part. I think we all know that's one of George's greatest accomplishments in this whole series is that complete turnaround of opinion on Theon and just approach to Theon. So that's going to be really good to look at. What about Davos? Our beloved Davos is now returned to us. The last we saw, he was saving Edric Storm and daring to stand up to Stannis on Dragonstone. Then next we knew, Stannis was on the wall, and our fan favorite Davos wasn't. So where did he go? Well, in a rarity, Feast actually did tell us this time round. He went to White Harbor, and he died. Apparently, that's what we've been told. So going in, well, okay, he's a POV. So are we going to have to see his death? Are we going to... Is George really going to make us read an arc where we know this fan favorite of ours is going to die at the end? Surely not, George. Surely George wouldn't be that cruel. And it turns out he's not. But still, we have to worry, don't we? And again, there's those big three. Tyrion had just made his biggest act of the series and killed Tywin Lannister before taking to sea. Now, he's brought up probably more than the other two in Feast thanks to Cersei's many chapters and that fruitless search of hers. So we've had plenty of time to make our guesses about where he's going and what he's doing. But we yet to actually find out what his new adventure is because we know, okay, something pretty major has just happened to you, Tyrion, and we want to see what you're going to do about it. Now, I don't think any of us are prepared for the Tyrion we actually get, especially at the beginning here. But we're definitely uh, very, very interested to see where he's going to end up. Especially because near the end of Storm, he was kind of thinking, oh, I could go down to Mycena, I could crown her, we could get that going. And well, we saw Dawn in Feast. So we know he hasn't turned up there yet. So where else could he possibly go? And the mind gets going. Now, what about the other two? Because with both Storm and Dance, the mirror between Danny and John is strong as ever in where we left them and what's going to happen to them in this book. John, who we did briefly see in Feast, but come on, I'm counting him as a return here. John, he had just been made Lord Commander with a king upon his wall and the wildlings defeated. So how was he going to handle that? How is he going to handle Stannis, all these wildling captives, the great big thing coming down from the true north? Hmm, pretty important questions. And the same type of questions applied to Dany, who had her own victory in Marine, but she chose to stay and be a queen. So how's that going? Are you ruling well? Or is this all wrapped up pretty neatly are we going to be going to westeros soon Oh no apparently not and it's going to be very similar for the both of them a frustrating rule where everything you do either pisses someone off or outright endangers them all the while you're trying to save people people you believe are your responsibility so both of them are going to have to give more and more of themselves away to try and get that job done and i think with both of them we're going to feel going through this that the boil will rise and rise both at the wall and the marine until it eventually spills over for both of them and they strike out only to face dire consequences near immediately the path of the heroes moves ever further away from the standard and george reed does lay a muddy sea of reality this isn't supposed to happen. It was supposed to be something closer to Danny Stormark. You go around conquering and freeing all the slaves and everyone cheers you. And now just go on to Westeros. It's easy. Just keep doing it. But we're not going to get that. We're not going to get Jon winning the war for the Night's Watch. We're not going to have those great big moments. We're going to have reality. The realities of rule and growing up and the difficulty of it all, the difficulty of many different factions which again both of them have to deal with in their respective places there's also this sense of them just both paying their dues almost because they ultimately just want to save people that's the goal for both of them here even though it does get mixed in with what they personally want as well that's the other part of it but really it's just more both of them looking bigger picture as we go which you can only assume is going to increase it wins and dream isn't it so now we've got through who's a returner or a rookie let's look at what they will actually be getting in this book in terms of percentage how much play time are they going to be getting here so we thought we had a big jump up in feast but it's even bigger now with 16 different pov characters so that's double what we got originally in a game of thrones if you're keeping count which is a good comment on the continuation of the series but also the evolution of george's writing style and focus there's a long time between writing this book and the first one and george's changed a bit he spread his wings we talked a lot about that for feast he quite enjoys doing that and uh well we're luckier for it aren't we so that does paint the two books feast and dance together in terms of expanding the scope of the story in this one i'd say we get more characters with less settings whereas feast is probably the reverse if you get my meaning as i compare it to a different book dance borrows from storm by having an epilogue on top of its prologue they're the only two to do that and we'll talk more on the prologue at a different time but for now let's just quickly mention the epilogue because it's obviously our biggest prologue slash epilogue character to date, in Kevin Lannister. We've never got access to someone that well known in uh, any other prologue or epilogue, so that's going to be very, very interesting, even if it's quite a while off yet. And there's other similarities between the two books as well. There's 72 chapters to 81 in Storm's favour, but apparently just a mere 2,000 words difference between them also in Storm's favour, so expect a few longer chapters for Dance here. And what about the unenviable challenge of how we're going to sort out these 72 chapters? Which POV goes where and in what order, etc. etc. We've spoken so much throughout this project about the chapter sequencing, you know I'm obsessed with that and how George is going to play these off one against the other and laying the themes and laying the connections and the foreshadowing and everything else. I'd perhaps say this is one of my most enjoyable things to look for in this project and one of the things I've learned the most about the series and about George and how he does it, so I really like that. Now we've already spoken about it being something very different in this book in having several POVs showing up much much later. But before looking at where they go, let's have a quick reminder of who gets how much. What's the minutes coach? How many how many am I getting here? We'll do it in tiers. So the first tier is for characters with one to two POV chapters, and that is Melisandre, Jamie, Cersei, Aereo, Victorian, John Con, and Aya. So already that's seven of your 16 characters right there of only one to two so you can see how just vastly different this is to what we've dealt with before and there's obviously a huge drop off for jamie and cersei that's the biggest difference here but that's to be expected isn't it because again like we said they have to let the others play catch up first the others they're mostly fine that's what we'd expect okay like we've already said aero victorion we've already got that from you mel yeah we'd want more than one sure joncon we don't really know yet but the most striking is obviously aya because all right it's only one less than feast but it's just so strange to us still because she had so many in clash and storm especially so combine that with bran that means we're getting six stark chapters in feast and down to five here so it's actually getting less Now, I think we all agree that's going to see a big upswing during wins, but still, it's just very odd to us. It just doesn't quite feel right, does it, not having the Starks around? And it also means we're not going to have that usual Sansa-Aya mirroring that we've become so accustomed to and is so enjoyable. Bran does come back and he only has three, as we'll discuss in a second. So, similar to Aya, but it's, it's not the same. It's not that same connection. So, this is very, very different of what we're dealing with here. And especially considering Feast as well, that Sansa and Aya were placed very regularly. They both had a clear beginning, middle, and end placed in those points throughout the novel. Not the same here. We'll have Bran at the beginning, and then Aya doesn't even appear until later. Again, we'll discuss that. Let's discuss it now. Let's do the next tier. These are the ones with three to seven POV chapters, and that is Bran and Asher with three. Then we have this mini group here of Quentin, Davos, and Barriston with four for some reason, I always remember Branagh's four, but I know it is three. So are the mini-adventurers there, those last three that I just mentioned. there. Quentin, Davos, and Barristan. George seems to have mastered the kind of four-chapter adventure during this book. Now, that's pretty basic for Bran and Davos. That's not too different to what they get before. A little less for Bran. Now, Quentin, he has already equalled the total Dornish chapters from Arrow and Arianne. So, well done to him. Passing on from those, Fion comes in with seven. He's a bit of a loner. He's the only one with that number. And that's more than I would have guessed if you'd asked me before this. He had six in Clash. So, a little bit of a step up from him. But then, let's get on to the big guns again. All three, unsurprisingly, are in double figures. Danny at ten. Tyrion with twelve and John gets 13th top dog spot. So pretty similar to what we normally see from them. Danny, she equals her high from Game of Thrones, which she hasn't actually got close to since, so we're spoiled in that regard, lots more Daenerys. And there's a nice comparison going because those first 10 chapters back in Game of Thrones were all about a journey for her, whereas this one, the whole point of this one, is the lack of movement and progress and the lack of journey. She's staying still and it frustrates her until the very end. So that's a nice little comparison there. Tyrion is the reverse he journeyed in Game of Thrones as well but since then he was in one place not anymore now he's journeying at least for most of this book and his chapters are just short of his uh, clash total and just above his storm total so he's right in the middle there. Jon reaches a new career high just edging out his storm number to reach 13 this time like we say that is the first time he is atop the pile which rings familiar with his actual arc as the new leader. Now that's the easy part through where do you actually put them all it's easy just to write the chapters and decide how many get but how am I actually going to put this together to make a flowing narrative book. Well you'll notice in the first uh, few episodes of the dance chapters for Scraps and Scrolls that George wants to make an early impression with getting his Triforce trio on the board first. They're the ones we miss the most they're the ones we're most hungry for and George doesn't disappoint doesn't make us wait any longer than he has to. Obviously, all three of them are regular throughout, given their high number of chapters, but we'll also see them placed together three different times, and often actually just missing out on a couple more there. Although I will say it's more noticeable that John and Danny are next to each other seven times during this book. So George is starting to lose some of his subtlety on that matter as we progress now, in that comparison between these two for these arcs. the only other thing to notice at this point is something even Feast did not really have, arcs racking up very very early even before the halfway point now okay that's easy with mel or ario they only have one chapter don't they what about davos and bran both of those are wrapped up by the 34th chapter about halfway so that's an oddity to have that done so early isn't it and i'm unsure why to be honest especially in bran who isn't near any of the other plots so you can have him wherever you like for davos it makes a bit more sense because he has to be dealt with before wyman heads to Winterfell, although you could have given him more chapters later on if you didn't want to hold him back for wins. And Barry, like we said earlier, he doesn't even start until very late in the book. So moving on from that, remember that many of these plots were formed with the five-year gap in mind, more so than those that were transferred to Feast, I think, in terms of John and Danny especially. So we'll see some remnants of that and how George has had to kind of double back and fold them into current times a little bit. But we'll talk about that as we go through these chapters, especially in the early ones, for danny for john and for others as well but to be fair i think you you just forget that as you're reading dance is its own book and these arcs are their own arcs they're completely separate you forget that pretty fairly quickly you can find it if you look for it but i think no we're just on we're finding out new stuff about these characters we've been waiting for so long and where
0: they're heading out to so now considering all that let's start to look at some of these actual individual arcs and I know a lot of it slipped through already just in talking about how many POVs we've all got so I'll try to avoid repeating myself I might be giving myself a bit of an editing task here but well we'll see how we go we're going to look at the arcs the themes how they're going to blend in together and what we've got this time around as with feast it is a much more extrapolated story in terms of people versus position we're going to see a lot of different places they're all going to be viewed if not quite as many as or at least not as many particularly focused on. We do kind of rush through some places on, on Tyrion's journey and other people's journeys, but there are a lot to consider: new places, new people, new ideas, new just new things we're going to have to deal with. So how we how should we look at this? I think we'll go geographically. Who do we have grouped together? in terms of the plot because normally the plot is working together geographically not always but that's how we i think that's how we're going to break it up and again i will say i know some of it slipped through already so not everyone will get equal focus Uh, i don't want to repeat myself but well we'll see how we go shall we Uh, i'll probably just cut all this out as i edit anyway because i know i am rambling let's just start at the top of the map joe shut up and get on with it So Bran, he is obviously the furthest north, he is above the wall, and apart from Varamir, he's the only one this time, and well, a little bit of Tiny John here and there, but he's the furthest north, and he's pretty far removed from what's going on, he's basically in his own little bubble here. He'll have a teeny tiny crossover with Theon himself, but even that's not explicit, although there will be plenty of connections for us to make through the Weirwoods later on. Bran, he has a pretty straightforward arc in his three chapters, not four, I always think it's four, it's three. It's two for the end of his journey, plus one really important in his his last chapter, where we get his life in the cave, his learning, and or like, like I just said, those visions of Winterfell in the past that we love so much. So it sounds good when saying it like that. Great, that's what we want, isn't it? Bran gets where he wants to go, Bran starts learning. Mission accomplished. Ooh, okay, but this is Dance of Dragons, so it's actually a bit more darker than that. Whether it's Cold Hands, it's Blood Raven, even with Jojen at the end, we're made to consider what death is and who's dead and who isn't. And Bran's linked to death now. Bran seems to be leaving the living world, doesn't he? He's left the literally the living world in terms of not winter. He's entered this land of extreme cold, no food anywhere. Everything's kind of bare and lifeless. Now he's left the world of, of above ground. He's back down like he was before in the crypts, beneath the earth into this kind of secret hidden area when it's just kind of removed completely and like i say there's so many links of death in terms of the people he's with the ancientness of the children of the forest and all these bones everywhere and they talk a lot about death um, and what happened to them so it's just very very prevalent in this little arc then we get on top of that brand's potential links to cannibalism his unknowing abominations with hodor as george continues to brilliantly paint him as a mostly innocent ever learning little boy even when he's placed in clearly the most magical and mysterious setting we've seen yet. No disrespect to Winterfell, or The Wall, or anywhere else, but I think we can agree Blood Raven's Cave is a cut above. And George, he's obviously said he finds Bran hardest to write, but I think you're doing pretty well there, George. As everyone knows, I'm not particularly a Bran fan, or at least I'm not, I'm not a Bran chapter fan. I don't have any problem with the character, or what gets done in his storyline, but normally when I come across a Bran chapter, I kind of eye-roll a little bit. But I do actually like dance Bran. Possibly because there's only three chapters, but I just feel the pace is a bit more moved up from early Storm and definitely the first two books. Maybe it's just because we get a little delivery on these promises. He does actually get there. He does actually get to do something with these powers, or at least we get the hints of it. Maybe it's just because I love past Weirwood visions so much, but I approve of Bran and his arc here. And yeah, like I say, very, very dark. We're going to be talking a lot about those abominations, especially early on, and and really it's just we're watching bran be guided down a dark path cold hands makes him eat humans we think blood raven who knows what he's making him do and it seems whether it's the right thing to do or it's just the necessary okay i know we're taking advantage of this kid but we got to save the world we don't know that yet but whatever it is it's it's dark and while that fits into all those theories i keep rambling on about, about all the stark children having to go down a very dark path before the end but we shall see but I think that's a good way to start off this roundup of themes, because pretty much everyone is going to be leaning further into the darker side of things. And that's definitely true with his nearest POV, like I said a minute ago, is Varamir, with all that warging and abomination stuff, and Varamir just being one of the worst people we meet in the series. That's no joke, he really is. And I won't go too much into why, because he's obviously going to be first up when we do start off scraps and scrolls properly but he just happens to be nearest geographically now Faramir he doesn't really have an arc he's just got the one chapter so what's his purpose well it's mainly giving plenty of information on Bran but also for Jon and his warging stuff and giving these hints of what's going to happen at the end of the book for Jon um even if in the moment in the reading obviously we don't know what's going to happen to Jon so we're just thinking oh Bran this Hodor that oh dear oh dear but then we'll see later how much he really ties into both of those Stark boys the clever part of that is george still makes you think of john because the actual circumstances why varamir is where he is and what's happened to him is connected to john and the battle on the wall so that's a really nice start off to the book to remind us hey you got to think of the chronology here and the timeline we're not at the end of feast we're still at the end of storm that battle has just happened we're going to be dealing with the repercussions and then we've got to catch up to the end feast so that's a good idea from george to get that in right away We get stuff on the wildlings, like I said, the aftermath of Stannis and what's going on there. So that's a really important chapter, like I said, and really, really dark right from the beginning. And it really doesn't stop. I'm not going to spoil too much. I've already kind of reread that and done the notes of Scraps and Scrolls. But let me tell you, prepare yourselves. George does not start off lightly in this book. What about elsewhere in the north? Because we do have quite a few POV's coming and going here, and they'll begin quite far apart. But then, the longer the book goes on, the closer they'll become. They'll kind of contract. Now, on the wall specifically, is Jon Snow and Melisandre an important pairing going forward if there ever was one for wins now we will return to john in a moment because we've kind of discussed his arc and dance journey a little bit already i think you all know what's going on there so let's look at mel instead melissandra we cruelly cruelly only get the one chapter for but it's still pretty amazing in terms of poking holes in some long-held theories or hopes or questions there's this big reveal that most of her stuff most of her magic is really just illusions and tricks of the trade but then that some things really are magical. And also, probably more importantly, that Melisandre doesn't know half as much as she claims, or she's not certain of as much as she claims. She's really just kind of riding the wave. And this looks like this thing. I'm going to go of it. I really hope it's true. No one knows anyway. So if I act confident, that's 90% of the task for me. So given that this is such a precarious bubbling situation throughout the book but especially at the end well that's not great is it we're really waiting to get more from innocent i think we can bet she's gonna have more than the one chapter in winds of winter and definitely is going to be of high importance possibly her highest importance in the series what would you say her most important act is so far is it i guess Understorm's storm's end and yeah it must be i suppose so i think we're gonna fly straight past that now, I'm going to move on from Melisandre as much as I love her. She's only got one chapter arc. We do need to get on. So, elsewhere, we have three POVs very much involved in the war for the North. The one that Jon tries so hard to not be a part of. There is both Fion and Asha Greyjoy, and then Davos Seaworth. And Davos, he takes the early shift. We get him early on, or we get him more early on in the other two we learn plenty about stannis's campaign for and going south from john but it's davos who's actually out knocking on doors and getting the, the hard work done doing the graft and he's doing it in a part of the north we've never been to yet and even though his story wraps up before everyone else really gets going it's still very important early on now he actually only has three chapters in the north out of his four as he has a pit stop at sisterton which belongs to the Vale. it's one of the harder chapters for me to figure out why it's included off memory alone which is the great thing about doing this re project is that we can go back, and remind ourselves, have a little, another sift through for why it is important, why it's included. So, yeah, we're going to have to look for that when we get there, which is fairly early on, actually. He's one of the first non-Big trio chapters we get to, so we look forward to that. I think the main purpose, probably, is to show that dear old Davos is down on his luck
1: again. Classic Davos, really. That's how we're going to start off this little arc. As we mentioned earlier, it's just been so long that we've been waiting to see what he's up to. That's all we want to know. After that amazing, risky effort to save Edric Storm at the, well, not even the end of Storm of Swords, but early on, kind of. And, well, Davos is just the guy that can't catch a break, isn't he? And things don't get much better for him as he progresses. He winds up in a cell. We all start getting really worried that we're going to have to actually watch him die. This from this info we've got from Feast, especially when Wyman Manderley specifically declares that is what is going to happen. He is going to die after that superb chapter
0: in the Merman's Court.
1: That is a superb chapter because
0: we learn more about the games within games, the ambition of Northmen, northern politics in general, and all this stuff about George playing more tricks on us, again, about Davos and his eventual fates, and how just
1: complex that whole northern politics situation is. Obviously, that comes before the classic, much-loved final Davos chapter with Wyman Manderley's speech, and really the ultimate hype-up chapter for this meeting of all of the north in Winterfell, Stannis versus Roose what's going to be happening there and we're going to learn feast will not be the only book full of fray revenge so you know we like that and again it also ends on another davos cliffhanger not of his death this time uh, just to be something different but i think he might get that treatment more than any other character Hmm. let's keep it in the north let's move to the brother sister combo because they pick up the slack later on as they show up on opposite sides of the northern war until we have one in the outside with stannis and one on the inside with the boltons and then actually their eventual remit at the very end i don't think we need to discuss theon too much here we know what we're getting really the darkest arc the darkest single book arc probably in a song of ice and fire is there really any comparison anything that makes us quite this uncomfortable anything that makes us ask real questions about our own wants for the man that we last saw burning down our collective home i've spoken many many times about winterfell being the center of this series emotionally and spiritually and fion burned it maybe not himself but he you know what he did he brought it all about so we blamed him we hated him and now george thinks aha I've not had enough challenges taken on for this series apparently, I'm going to set myself another one, I bet I can make you like this person that you hated, or if not like, at least feel sorry for, and to be fair, does a pretty good job. This is going to be such a deep dive into just stuff you wouldn't even imagine that someone would try and make us think about this, broken psychology, the most vicious, vicious violence that Fion suffered, and in fairness, we will get some form of growth I don't know how you imagine that's going to happen after just reading the first chapter, but we do get it as Reek at least resembles Theon again in some ways. Although don't kid yourself, that is not without many, many emotional and physical scratches along the way. There's by no means any easy path, which of course we know George doesn't do from Jamie and Tyrion and others. There is no quick fix for Theon whatsoever. This is going to be a painful book for him. Considering all the pain he's been through since we last saw him in Clash, this book isn't going to be all that much difference. And I think there is a reason that this arc, like I say, this single book arc is one of the more famous, not just of dance, but for the whole series among the fandom. There's a reason everyone obsesses over it analyzes it so much because it's it's brilliant it is mind-boggling firstly for the sheer surprise that exists i don't think anyone expected that but then the terrible bleakness of it all and the emotions it elicits out of us and again for the wonderful analysis that has been done on it over the years by several many different sources i'm sure you know i don't need to repeat i'm sure i know i've read it i'm sure you have as well or listen to it But it's also what we get out of Theon. If you can stand to get past all the initial tolos loss and mind terrors and rat eating, this is a Theon who takes us back to Winterfell. It's a Theon who takes us back to the godswood. Again, that spiritual center, the place we've wanted to be back at for so long. If you're anything like me, I know that's what I've wanted to do since the end of Clash, really. Two books now, we've been missing it. Basically free by the time we get there. Theon's the one, Theon's the vehicle to do it for us. And I don't think anyone ever expected that return. Maybe we guessed, yeah, we're going to get back to Winterfell at some point. But I don't think anyone guessed we're going to be doing it in the eyes of the man who first took it away from us. So it's just a brilliant, brilliant overall arc from George. And again, just in terms of this one book, it's superb as a single book journey. We've got plenty of examples of people having single book journeys. Theon himself, one of them from Clash. And this is really up there at the top. For Theon himself... His ruined body never improves, but his soul does ever so slightly like we said. This is a man who begins in a dungeon, eating a rat, terrified of even thinking about his own name. He ends not forgiven, not absolved, and certainly nowhere near happy, but better off than before. He takes back some level of his previous identity, a sense of self. He dares to break through that amazing mental stranglehold that ramsey has on him to be the hero or at least do the heroic act of saving jane at the end and we know george spends a whole book setting up how strong that grip is that ramsey has to for theon to actually break through that it really is an incredible moment the amount of fear and bravery that goes into that moment is very very emotional and part of him getting to that point is the return to Winterfell and what that does for himself. What that does for his self-examination of looking back at his time of the Starks and what Ned did and what having that incredible moment of admitting that it was all because he actually wanted to be part of the family. He didn't hate them really, that's his big breakthrough. Now we could have guessed much of this back in Clash, but it really does frame that whole Clash arc differently as we see the transition from Reek to Tool of the Boltons to some memory of Theon. Now he's also incredibly useful as a camera here. Unfortunately for us, that does mean we have to be up very close to Ramsay and his absolute horribleness and vileness for much of this book. And I like to view Ramsay as George giving himself the Joffrey that he didn't get to write thanks to Joffrey's death. I think George probably quite liked writing Joffrey as a head of a character... So he has to be killed off. Oh, this is boring. I don't have any absolute psychopaths to write about now. I know I'll make a new one, a grown-up one, so I can have all these extra aspects of it. Because Ramsay is little more than a fully grown Joffrey, whereas evil has been allowed to grow untethered. It's manifested itself into sexual violence as well now. And you, you can't tell me that Joffrey wouldn't adore this psychological horror and breaking of spirit that Ramsay has done to Fion. Ramsey, like Joffrey, is the most annoying type of villain. They're not even true antagonists in the way that a Peter Baelish, a Euron Greyjoy, even a Cersei Lannister, or definitely the others are. At least those guys all have goals, and you can even throw Roose Bolton in there if you want. Ramsay is just horrible for horribleness' sake. He doesn't want to do anything. He just likes being evil. He's just a spoiled brat who's never been told no. Combined with this seeming rotting and corruption of his and Joffrey's soul, they're both just straight evil so yeah i think ramsay is our new joffrey basically for the next act of this series but if we can get through those first few chapters theon shows us the major advancements on one side of the northern war he has the opening of moat caelin the journey to winterfell and then most importantly this incredibly interesting mix of factions we get inside winterfell with the boltons and the Freys and the Mandalays and everyone else i think i feel personally that is a real highlight of this book and something we've all looked at and discussed a lot in looking forward to this battle of ice everything looks incredibly bleak from ash's point of view which we'll discuss in a second even from what john hears about stannis it all seems like it's just stannis is going to lose straight up which is why it's great to have theon on the other side and actually see the reality how close ruse's plan is to collapse to see Wyman when mandley basically straight up trolling everybody and that's without mentioning all the other tidbits of Mance. we get the history of brandon stark and Barbary dustin we get this murder mystery later on and all this stuff it's, it's a great arc especially at the end well i say that but not really because we also have to be re- reintroduced to jane paul and while i love jane paul I definitely don't want to be reintroduced to what's happened to her or what is going to happen to her in this book. And I say this with being as genuine as I can. I honestly think that would be the most difficult part of this whole series to analyse and for me to actually talk about with you guys. I do not want to do it. Luckily, it's not for a while yet, but meh, my good God. Now, my personal favourite thing about Theon's late dance book is that we get Winterfell, number one, but Winterfell in winter we've not had that before it was still the tail end of summer maybe beginning of autumn last time we were there winterfell is built for winter surprisingly and now we get to see it we get to see winterfell at night under the stars and Winterfell getting buried in the snow it's a completely different dark creepy atmosphere that chills you as you read it this is a very different place Now that is it's just superb and we combine that with a return to the winterfell places that we know and love we go back to the great hall we revisit the crypts we go along the walls which hasn't haven't actually got a good look at before and of course the godswood the weirwood itself yeah you know i'll lap that stuff up all day so it's a shame that theon ends up leaving again but he may yet return it's definitely one of the more exciting endings of this whole book now that's a whole lot about theon but what about on the other side here because we have his sister we have Asher, who actually has differently titled chapters like her brother and like her many others so we might only have three from her but they're an awesome three she starts off with the moonlit battle at deepwood Mot, which is just beautiful writing is a really cool battle to read about and then she does turn into a bit of a stannis cam as we witness his journey and her journey faltering along thanks to the weather before that final chapter of hers where we really see how bad things are for team stannis as well as the many different factions of work there much like theon now to be fair in ruse's camp with theon it seems to be a much more volatile situation than what stannis has got going on but stannis is in the worst uh physical situation where they are they are dying out there it's in her middle chapter Stir, you know it starts off well they're going pretty fast on this march the snow comes down things get worse in her final chapter things are really bad and then we do have this really interesting north south divide between stannis's forces so that's great to read For asha herself She's also completely changed position from where we've seen her before. She was the suave leader at ease everywhere that she goes, but now she's gone from having her own castle to being a prisoner, to trying to stay away from being burnt alive, yet she's still super cool. And I'd say my favorite thing about her arc is the greater examination we get to see of who she is as a leader even in these very very difficult very different circumstances and it's pretty damn great so much much appreciation of asha that i look forward to looking at her chapters so that's the north in geographic areas it gets a little more difficult now at least in westeros if we move down below the neck we only have the one chapter in the riverlands with jamie which is very late in the book as we discussed earlier and that is obviously a huge departure from the first four books whether via catelyn aya jamie or Brienne. The Riverlands have always, always been a major part of the story, so this is something very new to us, and definitely an aspect why some, like myself, aren't as big a fan of dance as the others. Now, Dawn is much the same with the lone Aerio Hotar chapter, even if that does give us a lot of setup for the future, and we do at least have some Dawnish connections in Quentin. But that one chapter, we're not really spending a lot of time in Dawn or the Riverlands, unfortunately. Now, King's Landing and the Eastern Coast will see a late resurgence with Cersei's two chapters, Kevin's epilogue, and the late coming of John Connington and the Golden Company. We'll talk about those guys in a second, because Cersei is clearly the bigger interest. She's a huge interest to us, given her massive importance in Feast, and the gigantic cliffhanger she was left on. And things don't actually improve much for Cersei in her first chapter, as she learns a bit more about all the changes in King's Landing, but come on, I know, I know, no one really cares about that first chapter. It's her second, her walk of shame chapter that is so famous. I know some fans who always think that it was in Feast because you just can't imagine having to wait for it so long. This is a massive, massive chapter that is incredible and painful and raw to read. It's some of George's very best work in terms of making us feel bad for characters we hate again, like with Theon, and ends with that slight tiny promise of Cersei returning to power and there's obviously so much we're going to talk about thematically and what we learn of cersei and feast and d- historically as well there's so many so many connections to make in that chapter so that is really going to be <laughs> expect a long episode that day when we get to that chapter but that is put in perfect contrast by the epilogue with kevin which i know we're also very much looking forward to it. even if it's very far in the future we are looking forward to it because it's an absolute classic with chapter with a tonne of hints and tidbits for stuff going forward undoubtedly it is our best epilogue yet apologies to Merritt, but Merritt is cool that he was backwards facing that was about the red wedding really and this one reveal of stoneheart kevin he gets a big reveal in at the end as well but there's just so much more served for wins and beyonds which again we'll, we'll get to we're gonna watch the death of a really really awful guy so that's fun but we also lose an absolute constant in Pycelle who's just always been there and now he's not going to be and we get the return of a once constant character in Varys this other thing that we've been waiting for so so long and it's obviously a brilliant thematic close to the book as we link up this whole uh, very prevalent idea of Aegon VI as well as finally having the reveal of who Varys really is in some respects Anyway, we at least know his motivation now, which is something we've been wondering about for a very long time, so it's a brilliant end to the book. We look forward to that. And that's actually quite a good segue over to Essos now. Now, Essos has been present in every book so far, but not like this. Feast broke the record with having just two POVs on that continent in Arya and Sam, and Sam, so he pops his head in. Now we've got a whole party going on over there. And really, Essos can be split into two halves with some leftovers. There's Daenerys stuff, fake hagon stuff and then you get two eyes and maybe you can throw the victarians in there as well even though he is geared towards Daenerys, he doesn't actually get anywhere near in this book the iron chapters we can kind of fly by for our purposes here her arc is mainly just a continuation of faceless men progress she earns her eyes back she gets ready for her first assassination i don't think either of these chapters are any more memorable than her feast chapters and this is kind of more just a formatting timing issue in that they've got to go somewhere so we'll kind of put them here now i might be proved wrong maybe there are some kind of time restraints that make them be put in this place specifically we'll have to look for that as we go victorian is far more interesting as he starts getting more involved with the typical soc aspects of the red guard and weird things going on the fire and him just entering what well, he's gone from one kind of magic thing with euron to a different one now he has his hand weirdly saved uh, with magic and or religion whatever you want to call it we confirm that he does want danny for himself like we guessed at the end of his feast arc but far more interestingly we get way more info on the horn and dragon binder and what it can be used for in terms of dragons so victorian is also kind of just more set up for wins than actually affecting anyone else in this book specifically but it's very very interesting that we're really dying to get to but let's move on to the bigger ones Let's move on to John Connington, our new boy. He actually splits his two chapters, one in Essos and one in Westeros, as Tyrion takes most of the responsibility for the early fake Aegon journey. As mentioned earlier, it's a hell of a character to get inside given his history, which is obviously key in this new plot thread around young Griff, fake Aegon, whatever you want to call him. And he mainly serves first as an introduction to the Golden Company and what they'll be used for and their history, but also as a continuation of this ferris Illyro theme of not accounting for the human element in your plans. This man, John Connington, has dedicated twenty odd years of his life to a plan that basically focuses almost exclusively on the young lad next to him. But that young lad, with a, a bit of a nudge from Tyrion, is evolving into his own character, as complex and unreliable as any that George cares to pen. Young Griff wants to do things his way, screw the plan. And to be fair, John Con does get on board with that pre-kick. kick. It is a big decision that Tyrion nudges uh, young Griff into of going going west before going to Daenerys. That is going to change a lot. We've already seen it, but obviously by series end, we're really going to be looking back at that as a pivotal, pivotal moment in the progression of the final act of the story. So really, Jon Conn's main purpose can be summarised as showing us the formation of how this great split between the two Targaryen factions comes about and setting up the actual second dance we might see when danny finally does come west the name of the book is obviously uh, quite relevant here but probably even more so in the future we are now very much dealing with the new state of the new targaryen generation maybe that's why george wanted to spend so much time on fire and blood because we're going forward into a new era of targaryens and obviously these two whatever young griff is they're going to be very important in the formation of it and they're the second targaryen invasion whatever you want to call it Personally, Himself, Jon Con also gets quite a lot in for just two chapters. We have the regrets of the rebellion, which includes guilt over not protecting Rhaegar's wife and children, plus guilt at not burning down a village full of people so quite the spectrum there we have that tywinness angle that's one we're all looking forward to seeing develop well perhaps not looking forward to but we expect to develop he's de- that's in there for a reason isn't it john Conn is probably going to do something bad based on wanting to be more like tywin especially as george has added a countdown clock in his gray scale now, interestingly that aspect is actually introduced at the end of his first chapter not his second so we're well aware of it by the time he returns to his home where the soldier is obviously even more rampant we get to ask grand questions of what the plan for stone's end is will john Con actually live long enough to see his success and will he learn maybe the truth about young griffin if that is the truth that he's not aegon the six how much will that destroy jon Con? and will he be able to keep control of this new leader whoever he is whatever we find out will he be able to keep control of him as he is about to be introduced to the the world at large especially if dragons eventually get involved so jon is really going to be a major viewpoint of importance going into Winds, as we assume he'll be at king's landing and along with arianne and cersei be a big window into what's happening there again this whole plot thread is going to be huge really really big and a lot of this reread has been building up to it in the first place so everyone else remaining that we haven't spoken about yet is really revolving around daenerys and aren't we all really if we're being honest quentin has the again much analyzed arc of basically failure the prince of dawn perhaps its heir if everything went to plan fell prey to george insisting on showing us another reason that the fairy tales and songs should not be taken to heart is a young man off for adventure, like his boat, and finds that he stinks, like his boat. Worst instincts: it's siege warfare and disease, cannibalism and battle, double crossing, redouble crossing, and the death of good friends. Only for it all to end in a kind of wet, dull thud when he meets Daenerys. He achieves his goal, and nothing happens. He meets her, says something. And that's about it. Hmm. Well, that's at first. Anyway, that's not his actual ending, is it? We should consider that in a book full of people trying to get to Daenerys. Quentin is actually the only one who manages it, but it doesn't matter. He can't just whisk her into the sunset. The situation is far, far too complicated for that. So was it all worth it? Killing people in battle and switching sides and dragging your friends into hell or death all for nothing? No, Quentin wants to do right by his father and his kingdom, so he decides to go for broke, or rather, burnt. Here's a hell of an arc to fit in just four chapters, with a couple of cameos in Danny's chapters as well, and one in which George gets across a definite message. Again, the clue is in the name. If you dance with dragons, you probably end up as toast. Now Tyrion and Danny well we could spend another hour talking about those two. We likely don't need to talk about them too much now, seeing as we will spend so much time really diving in about into their arcs and the weight they bring to the narrative in their many, many chapters, especially early on. Tyrion will actually open the book proper after Ramir and Daenerys isn't too far behind, so we won't have to wait too long for that. To round it up very quickly, Daenerys is nearly a straight replication of John's struggle with leadership. We did mention a bit of this earlier. Although she leans very heavily into another identity crisis as well. Does she do more good as a floppy eared rabbit or as a fire breathing dragon? Guilt and the need to save as many people as possible point her towards the ears at first, but then the natural frustration of someone of her age, combined with the situation she's in, push her ever more. Back towards the dragon until she finally makes a huge leap in terms of targaryen progression both physically and emotionally by riding upon an owl grown a like semi-grown drogon as well as electing to screw the bunny ears and become a dragon herself in her final chapter needless to say we will be covering this plenty and danny's biggest ever book biggest since game anyway Tyrion, we also know very well the deep dive into the dire state of his soul, especially in the first half of the book. There's the the half-hearted hunt for Tysha, the continued hatred for Tywin, for Cersei, even for Jaime. The very difficult part of seeing a once-favorite character become a rapist, a nihilist, and generally just not be very nice to anyone, mixed with at least glimpses of his former self coming back to the surface. Unfortunately, that comes after setting this second dance in motion, thanks to that Savas game with young Griff. And his viewing of the world, especially a dwarf's world, via the eyes of penny and then of himself when he becomes a slave this is all very very different for Tyrion. now again much analyzed it's much spoken of and it's a truly heavy read that we'll be spending a lot of time with so let's push on here don't want this episode to last too long let's finish up with sir barry our newest pov and he's the last to be introduced in this book as well and he's also actually given perhaps the title of most frequent in the book given that it's four chapters all come in the final 14 of the book so we get a lot of him very quick through him we see the consequences of a marine without its queen the preparations for battle and a really cool duel actually unfortunately we also have some opinion changing stuff on barry's past and his attitudes to certain things and some setup of further change in marine whether he realizes it or not all in all there's some pretty big chapters going on late there so we look forward to that and that is everyone i believe i don't think i've left anyone out correct me if i have as you can see or hear We've got lots to consider, so make sure you are prepared when Scraps and Scrolls and Valor does kick off. This is a big old book, everybody. It's a dark book. It's one where not much good happens. In fact, a lot of really bad things happen. And yet there are seeds of things that we want to see being sowed. Yeah, that's a hard sentence to say. Winterfell is brought back to us. Danny does progress on her dragon skills and gets out of marine. Bran does become a bit more powerful. Perhaps Rickon's return hes even hinted at. There are things we can grasp to. So what a shame that all that is due to be followed by the darkest book in the series. Which really does make you think about what is going to be. Check back on this once we've finished Dance. Once we've got through all these really horrible things happening to our main characters. But to the world in general. I think that's a big part of Dance. We open the lens a bit more to see what's going on with everyone. Like Feast did in Westeros. We get that a bit more on Essos this time around. And then consider that George says it's going to get worse. That wins is going to be a sledgehammer in our face, truly. But it will have to wrestle that title out of Dance of Dragons Claws. Dance has the unfortunate distinction of being both about the fallout of war and the build-up to war again. Let's remember, this book was supposed to end with two huge battles, probably the two biggest we've ever seen. Now, okay, they got pushed back. Can't do anything about that now. We all lament it, but that's how it is. But we can feel that rising, bubbling tension of things are bad, 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 bad and then they kind of explode into everything getting much worse at the end, which was obviously a link-in to Winds of Winter. So I guess George is actually borrowing some of Dance's horribleness for Winds of Winter. Maybe that's why he gets the title. In general, the cold comes in, cannibalism is rife, now we have disease in at least one corner, maybe two, a horn that can steal a dragon, an elephant-laden army coming to the capital, our three biggest characters, a slave, a captive of the Dothraki, or supposedly dead, up in the north and the others they are coming ever closer dance is a book of many things but its biggest point has to be the dedication and focus to the wall and the dragons both thematically and in human form now i've said the dance of the dragons is a title about daenerys and aegon the six certainly fits but you can also look at it as this is a book about john and daenerys it is about dragons thematically and in human form we are entering the end it seems to say these two are the two biggest points they're the biggest characters when you really get down to it more than any other this is a book belting out a tune about ice and fire as it preps for those two big battles of each the ones that were supposed to cap it off like i said we were denied that but we still get the build-up the sense of atmosphere this feeling that we're coming towards the ends of the series so this is incredibly valuable for that reason alone and it's a hell of a book that i'm sure you look forward to getting to and so do i so that is our primer that is our prepper episode that's a lot of talk <laughs> we probably will have forgotten by the time we get to a lot of these chapters and characters that so we're not going to see for a long time but whenever we do kick off we'll have brown here and Tyrion and daenerys and john and it's going to keep going from there and never really let us go it's a big old book the second biggest in the series if i remember rightly only slightly behind storm so it's important everybody and i hope uh, you will like coming along for the ride again thank you if you intend to do so thank you for the first four books as well it is a hell of a ride so that's it i'll leave you there enjoy the remainder of the break enjoy whatever else the fandom is chucking out because like i say it comes left right and center if you'd like to look at our patreon and get that storm's end episode please do i'll have a video kind of episode hopefully up soonish and well it won't be too long before we're on the aisle again so thanks everybody and i'll see you next time